If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And we'll look at two verses, verses 34 and 35. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, read with me. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Let's uh, bring these things to the Lord. Father in heaven, we once again thank you for your faithfulness to your word and to your promises. Lord, we thank you today and we can celebrate today because you indeed keep every promise that you make. You've seen everything through that you start. And Father, you are faithful to us. The ones that you have blessed with salvation, the ones, Father, that your word says will be kept until the day of redemption. And Father, we rejoice in the relationship that we now have with you because of what Jesus did for us. So, Father, we rejoice in the fellowship that we have with you and, as a result of that, the fellowship we have with each other. Father, I pray that as we look at this sermon, as we look at your word today, that the love that we have for you and for each other would grow, that we would understand how important your church is to you and how much Jesus paid to win it. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. As we celebrate 10 years uh, today, there'll be much fanfare and food and uh, visitors and goodwill and all that other stuff. And we'll be having a good time, no doubt. But in the midst of all the celebration and all the good times that we have, we, we need to make sure that we do not lose focus of why we are actually here. And not only why we are here, but we need to not lose focus of who we actually are. You see, this isn't a club. This isn't just an association. This isn't just a get-together on an occasion. This is a body that God has created to glorify himself. This is a, an organisation that, that God has formed which will endure the test of time. It's important that we see ourselves the way God sees us. I honestly believe, I truly believe, that the reason a lot of Christians struggle with their walk is that they don't even see themselves the way God says that they are. And if you don't see yourself the way God says that you are, then what hope do you have of living up to what he tells you you are? So today, who and what we are defined by is the word of God. The Word of God tells us who we are and why we are here. And the way God sees this church, the way God sees his church in general, is through the eyes of his only son. And the reason he does that is because to his son, the church is absolutely precious. And he paid a great deal for it. So this morning, I want to look at that. And as a result, I want us to understand why Jesus gave a new commandment. Why did Jesus have to say, love one another? And that by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Did he have to give that? 
when the Bible already said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul and strength and love thy neighbour as thyself, didn't it? Wasn't that enough? No, Jesus actually said, no, 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 no. They will know that you are my disciples because of how you love each other. So today I want you to understand and I'd like us to all to understand why he said that. Why it is that we need to have a special love for each other and how that makes a difference. Okay? Let's go back to how it started. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Verse 15. Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus had asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And some of his disciples said, well, some of them say you're John the Baptist. The other ones say that you're Elias and some other ones say that you're, you're a prophet and other people say that you're something else. And Jesus said to his disciples at that point, but who say ye that I am? Verse 15. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen? When Peter declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus answered and said, You know something, Peter? You didn't come up with that. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. Other men didn't reveal that to you. And you didn't come up because you're so smart. He said, My father's told you that. My father has given you that critical piece of information. And it's that critical piece of information and that declaration that Jesus is building his church upon. Because if a person believes that Jesus is the Son of God, if they believe that He is the Christ, the one that God promised from the beginning, from the Garden of Eden, then a person is saved because they've received Him as their Saviour. And Jesus says, on this rock, on this declaration, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And there's two words I want us to understand very, that are very important there. He says, upon this rock, I will build. Who's building? Is it us? No. We don't build anything. We don't build the church. It's Jesus who is building his church. I want, I want to look at three separate passages to help you understand who's the one who's building here and why. Turn to John chapter 14, verse 1. <laughs> John chapter 14, verse 1 to 3. Now, most of you understand this and have known this passage, and some of you have claimed it for your own, where Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, Jesus is saying, The same way you believe in God, the same faith you have in him, have it in me. You like that? Who is he saying he is? God in the flesh. He says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And that's where he is now, preparing a place for us. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. 
That's a big amen. He's preparing a place. Is he building? Looks like our Savior's a builder. He's building. Turn to First Peter chapter First Peter chapter two, verse five. 1 Peter chapter two, verse five. It says there, now the Apostle Peter says, ye also, and that's us, as lively stones. That doesn't mean stones that dance around and that are very vibrant. It means stones that are alive, that are living, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. That's Jesus Christ. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Oh, sorry, I've gone to the next one. I'm getting too excited. It fits well, though. (laughs) Peter is saying that God is building us up into a spiritual house. Okay, And the Bible says that the picture is that he's taking us as spiritual stones and he's bringing us together. And he's building this beautiful structure. You know something? It says he's preparing a place for us, but he's building us at the same time. Guess where you're being built? Guess where your home is? It's in heaven. And guess where you already exist? The Bible says that we are already seated with Christ in heavenly places. Already. So we already exist in heaven. So this this little meeting that we have over here in Faulkner is already happening in heaven. Okay? It's not a coincidence. The Bible said that God actually is building his church. Jesus is building a church. Okay? He's building his house. And now I'm going to give you the next part, which you already know. <laughs> Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. I should have pushed the enter bar there, you know, left it a bit of a space. That's okay, I'll learn. Revelation chapter 21. Verse 9 to 11. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Who's built this? Jesus has. The holy Jerusalem, the, this magnificent thing that Jesus has built is the lamb's wife. You know what the Bible calls the church? 
the lamb's wife. And what we are now is the betrothed. So most people get engaged before they get married, correct? And the engagement time is that waiting time when you're preparing yourself for that wonderful occasion, okay? This is where we're at. The Bible says that we are his betrothed. He's betrothed himself to us and we to him. So when you put your faith in Jesus, what you've said is, I choose you out of everyone else in the world, out of anyone else in history, I choose you to spend the rest of eternity with you. It's very much like a wedding. And so while he's going to prepare a place for us, he's actually preparing us. What he's doing is actually working with us to build us into a wonderful body. The Bible says, which is also his body. Not only is Jesus the cornerstone, the first part of the structure, but he's the builder as well. He's the one who's preparing a home for us. He's the one who's building us up. He's the one who claims that holy city that will come down and join and come down to the earth. He's the one who will bring all these things together. And how they all work exactly, to be honest with you, I don't know. But it sounds fantastic. And I can't wait for the day. So we are part of this building that's taking place. And everything done in Christ's name according to his will in this little church. Whatever ministry we speak of. Whether it's outreach or song leading or greeting or tithing, announcements, reading, the, reading God's word, involving in public prayer, whether you print a bulletin, whether you support the missionaries, how we preach, how we teach, Sunday school teaching, whether you clean, whether you build something, whether you cook or pray or edify or counsel and all the other things that God has called us to do as part of this body. That's simply Jesus working through us to build this, his church. To create this beautiful bride for himself. So if you're part of that, congratulations. If you're part of that, God bless you. Keep it up. But understand that we are just privileged to be part of it. It's not us who started it. It's not us who's building it. It's not us who actually brought anything good with us to say, God, this is what I'm bringing to the table. What about that? We had nothing to bring. And everything good in us is what he's already planted there. We're just privileged to be a part of it. So whether you call it the church, a spiritual house, a holy Jerusalem, what the Lord has begun at faith, and what will soon begin in Sunbury, is a continuation of a building program. Begun by the Lord and which will ultimately glorify him. And you know, someday the Bible says that when this marriage takes place, the Bible says that he offers everything to the Father again. But ultimately, the Bible says that Jesus, who, was the, who is the Son of God, but who was the Son of God, sitting on a throne, being worshipped by all the angels, decided, you know something? I'm going to join myself to man. Forever. So we will be joined with him forever. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And for all of eternity, we will enjoy each other's company. Now that's a wonderful, wonderful story. 
The other thing I'd like you to take note in that particular passage, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, it says that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The other thing that we need to clearly understand, the church is not only built by the Lord Jesus Christ, it's owned by him. He owns it. You can go and build, you can go and build a home using a builder, but he doesn't own it. In this case, the builder is the owner. Jesus is an owner-builder. And I'm happy about that. I'd rather not be owned by anyone else. None of this is really ours. None of this. We're just stewards of everything that is material here. But not just the material things. The Bible says that we are stewards, which means a steward is someone who manages something for someone else, who takes care of it. It's a bit like if I, if I go away on a holiday and I leave you my dog and I say, look after my dog, and you say, I'll take care of the dog. And then when I get back from my holidays, my dog's destroyed your house. But you've still looked after my dog. You've done your job. Okay? And my dog will destroy your house. The point is, a steward is someone who takes care of something for someone else. So the Bible says that we are just stewards here. We don't own anything here. There is nothing in here that, that we can claim to be our own. God has just said, here, you take care of this for me. I want you to manage this properly. And through that management, God helps us to grow. So we, so we are not owners. We are stewards. But not just of the material things. The Bible says that we are stewards of each other. Of each other. If you want to discover the, the answer to Cain's question, remember Cain's question to God? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for him? The one he killed? You know what the answer to that is? Yeah. You know the place that you're meant to discover that? is here. The place that should be lived out more than anywhere else is here. We realise that we are each other's keepers. We are meant to look out for each other. Just like a family looks out for themselves, looks out for each other, just like a husband and wife look out for each other, the Bible says that the place where genuine love is to be found, the place where that keeping is meant to be realised is in the church. We are our brethren's keeper. That is your calling if you are a Christian. And that requires patience, time, sacrifice, and your money. It requires all aspects in order to keep someone else. Are we responsible for each other? Yes, we are. It's not just me. Although the Bible is very emphatic about my role in this particular, this particular thing. It says that I, me, as the as chief servant of these people, has a responsibility not just for how this building is managed and how everything's set up and making sure that everything works and, and, and operates on time, but my responsibility is for your soul. But you have a part to play in that as well. Because there is absolutely no pastor in this world who could possibly keep track of every soul. The Bible says we are to care one for another. In fact, 
Not only do we not own everything here or anything here, the Bible says we don't even own ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So my body, my spirit belong to him. Once again, I'm just a steward. Our bodies are essentially on loan to us. They belong to Jesus. We are to use them for his glory. Which brings me to the next point. What did it cost him? What did it cost him to purchase us? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 again. I want you to just, just keep your finger in this particular verse that I've read it already. And then we're going to look at some other verses. And I want you to understand something that's very, very important. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, it says, For ye are bought with a price. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore, it says, Because we are bought with a price, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So I need you to understand something. We have been bought with a price that has purchased us completely. What price was possibly paid in order to buy me? What was spent? Do you remember <clears throat> a while back I gave a sermon about the, the pearl of great price? Do you remember that, that sermon and said that you know, a fellow went out looking for a pearl and he found an, an, an amazing pearl and what did it say? It says he sold everything that he had. Let me, read, let me read the passage to you. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and he bought it. Do you know who that merchant was? Because it wasn't me. I had nothing to sell. I had nothing to give. To buy this amazing pearl. It was Jesus who bought me. And you might say, well, what did he sell? What did he give? Well, let me clarify that a little bit more with you. The Bible says that throughout all of eternity, he was sitting on a throne in heaven, in perfect relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Before any angel was ever created, they had a, a perfect love relationship with each other, a perfect bond. They didn't need anyone else. They didn't need us. They didn't need angels. But because of the amazing love they had, they chose to create this universe that we live in and us. And the Bible says that Jesus was the Son of God who was sitting on a throne being worshipped by all of these angels. Remember the Isaiah, the prophet, has a vision of that. And he said that he looked up and he saw God sitting on his throne, the Lord, and it said that his train filled the temple and there were seraphims on top of him with six wings and they covered their own faces because he shone so greatly. And it says that they were just calling out one to the other, holy, holy, holy 
He's a Lord God. He left that. He left it. He left that throne of glory. A perfect, a painless environment, absolutely glorified in every possible way. And it says that he came to this world. And when he was born, there wasn't even a place for him to be born. There was no room for him at the inn. And he was born amongst animals. He was born in a stable. Wouldn't want my son to be born in a stable. And he endured the sin. He endured the pain. And he endures people like us. He came to a world that the Bible says didn't even recognize him. John chapter 1 says he was in the world. And it says, and the world was made by him. And the world knew him not. It says he came to his own and his own received him not. So imagine you come to your own family, you knock at the door. You say, I'm here. I've come. And they go, we don't know you. So even though he came to his own people, his own people rejected him. And in the end, they rejected him so much that they handed him over to these, these people you see who come up with a, with a terrible way of, of punishing criminals. They put him on that. In the end, he gave it all. He gave his life. He gave all his effort. The Bible said he, he allowed all his blood to drain out for me and you. There was no other one who has spent so much in order to gain a people who were so utterly unworthy, undeserving. He gave it all. Sold it all. He gave it all up so he could win us. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 12, He chose to set his affection upon us. Even though we were utterly unlovely, we were rebellious at heart, we were sinful and iniquitous. The Bible says that he chose to bestow his love upon us and it says that as many as received him as many as they opened the door and they said oh it's you come in he gave he to them he gave power to become the sons of god even them who believe on his name isn't that an absolutely amazing story the bible said his own didn't receive him but anyone who did receive him anyone who said come in and he still knocks, the Bible says in Revelation. Behold, he stands at the door and knocks. And if any man will open to him, he will come in and sup with them and, and, and them with him. What an amazing picture that the Son of God still knocks and says, let me in. He'll never force himself in, though. So what constitutes a church? What constitutes a church? What is a church? You know, it's those people who have simply led in Jesus. They've received him. 
And they've said, I understand what you've done for me. I know the price that you paid. I know that I can't save myself. I know that I'm utterly bound with sin and destined for hell. And it's only because of what you've done that I can actually have life. All those who have received Jesus and have believed in his name, the Bible says, are brought into the church. God brings in. Everyone who has been saved by Jesus Christ has had all their sins cleansed, have had their names written in the book of life. The Bible says that God puts his Holy Spirit into their heart. He seals them. He seals them with a seal unto the day of redemption. There's nothing that could ever take you away from his hand. Nothing. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll look at another aspect of what God has done for us. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. We often use this passage when we're having a wedding ceremony. It says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Well, that's a big, that's a big ask there, because he gave everything for his wife. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's what God wants for you and me. That is what's destined to happen. And this process that's, that's happening now, this, this, sancti- this period of sanctification, God's working in our hearts for that to occur. Christ clearly loves the church, does he not? He loves the church so much that he, he gave his whole life for it. And demonstrated it completely in every possible way. But not just that. He didn't just give his life. He now continues to cleanse it. But it says by the washing of water, by the word, he's continuing to sanctify, to purify, to lead. And he longs to be together with her. On that day, when there will be a fantastic wedding feast... And this is the fulfilment of a promise that Jesus made to Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is his. When the day of Pentecost came, Peter was standing on a rooftop with the other disciples, and God had given them utterance. God had given them the ability to be able to speak different languages, so men from all over the world who were gathered in that place at that time actually heard them speak in their own language and they go, who are these guys? These are, these are people from Nazareth. These guys aren't learned. These are country bumpkins over here. What are they doing speaking my language? I'm from Cappadocia, I'm from Persia, I'm from, I'm from Rome. How, how are these guys actually speaking our language? It's because God had uh, done something amazing. He had put languages in people's minds who had never studied them so they could declare what God had done. 
And when Peter got up and he made this amazing uh, sermon, he said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So then in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, we'd have a bit of a problem with that. There'd be a lot of ordering of chairs and things. We'll let Don order the chairs. It says they were added to the church on that day. Once they had... Once they had heard that word, the Bible says that they gladly received it, which means they accepted it for themselves. They accepted that Jesus Christ was the Messiah who God had promised, and they said, yes, we'll take him. And the Bible says that they were then baptised. They weren't baptised in the pool, in a heated pool. They weren't baptised in the baptistry. They were baptised in the river. Okay? Uh, is that, a, is that a, a private affair, you reckon? Is that a private affair? Okay, what do you reckon would have happened to these Jews who baptised themselves in a river in front, of every, in front of all the world to see and they said to everyone, I'm following Jesus. He's now my saviour. Do you reckon they would have received accolades from all their families and friends? No. These men and these women had put up their hand to follow Jesus and they knew the result of what would happen. This is why they were added immediately to the church. As soon as they were baptised. You notice something? They got saved. They were baptised. They didn't go through any discipleship classes. They didn't do anything like that. Because what the decision they made was a public decision and they knew very well what they were getting themselves into and they were baptised immediately and then brought into the church immediately. They were added to the church the same day. And the term added means that they were added to something that was already there. That's why a person, when we baptise a person in our church, we add them to the membership like that. Because that declaration that a person makes when they go under the water is telling everyone, this is what's happened to me. I'm declaring this publicly. I want to make this known that Jesus is my Lord and my Saviour. And when a person makes that public declaration, the church looks at that person and says, come in. You're now one of us. So what does the church do? Turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we'll read verse 41 and 42, okay? So it says there, Then they that gladly received his word were baptised, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. What's a church? A church is a body that continues that tradition, that continues those very things. It's a place of proper doctrine. 
It's a place of fellowship. It's a place of breaking bread. And it's definitely a place of prayer. Without these essential ingredients, it cannot be said to be a real church. And this is the legacy that has been left to us from the beginning church, from the very first day that the church started. And this is the legacy that we should desire to leave to the next generation. Nothing outside of that. We're part of this church. And God has started this church 2,000 years ago. And what our prayer is that we, we are as like them as humanly possible and by the Spirit of God and by the grace of God possible. The church here is a descendant of that church that the Lord began at Pentecost. It is the same Spirit that indwells every believer here. It is the same baptism that we perform. It is the same doctrine that we find in the Word of God that we preach. It's the same fellowship that we enjoy one with another. It's the same remembrance of the Lord's table where we lift Him up because He gave His body and His blood for us. And it's the same God we pray to. You happy with that? This small church in Faulkner is part of a building that God Himself is putting together 2,000 years later upon an awesome foundation whose name is Jesus Christ, who is our chief cornerstone. And the Bible says that God dwells in this church. God dwells in it. Which brings me to my final point, which is the reason I read the first passage. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. John chapter, John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall... All men know that ye are my disciples if you have love one to another. You know, a couple of years ago at our annual conference, and we have an annual conference every year with a, with a varying theme from one year to the next. If you haven't been to one, I'll invite you to come. They're a great time together. We firmly concluded at one of them, I think it was a couple of years ago, that a Christian was the same thing as a disciple. That you couldn't be a Christian and not call yourself a disciple as well. A disciple is a follower of Christ, the one who imitates him. Okay? And a Christian was definitely a disciple as well. You can't separate those two. They're the same thing. So in this one where Jesus says, By all, uh, all men shall know that you are my disciples, he's saying all men shall know that you are Christians. We conclude from this passage that one of the signs of genuine Christianity of genuine Christians is the love they have for each other. And there is no greater demonstration of love than the commitment that comes from belonging to a New Testament church. Why do I say this? Because genuine love shows commitment through good times and bad. It demonstrates the virtues that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Real love puffs it out. Real love sticks through thick and thin. It doesn't abandon when things start going wrong. You know, the same commitment you make, husbands, to your wives, to love and honour them. It's like that. 
There's no turning back once you've made that commitment. God does not expect you at the moment when things start getting tough to say, oh, sorry, see you later, this is not what I expected. You expect, you're expected to tough it through, to work together, to encourage one another, to be patient with each other. This is true for a marriage. It's true for a family or any relationship. And the highest example of this type of love was demonstrated by Jesus himself, who declares himself to be the model in this particular passage, as I have loved you. Look at me. Look at what I endured for you. Did you deserve it? No. Did I deserve it? Absolutely not. Yet he stuck it through all the way to the end. What love did he show us? Oh, the type of love that leads someone to die on a cross for a people that neither deserved his love nor understood it. His own disciples, the ones he spent three years of his life with teaching and, and, and coaching and, and encouraging, his own disciples abandoned him when he, was, when he was on his way to that cross. They abandoned him. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Have a look at the type of love that Jesus expects from his children, that he expects from the church. It says, charity suffers long. That means very patient, very patient, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not selfish, is not easily provoked. It thinketh no evil of other people. It rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. It beareth all things. It, it, it believeth all things. It hopeth all, hopeth all things. It endureth all things. That's real love. Real love endures. Real love bears. Real love believes. Real love has hope. Yet, when Jesus went to the cross, the very man who made that declaration that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, denied him three times and says, I don't even know him. Yet, Jesus persisted. He never gave up on Peter. If it was me, I might have given up on Peter. You know something? Deny me once, deny me twice. Ah, I might put up with that. You know, three times? Maybe three strikes you're out with me. Not with Jesus. Jesus never gives up. And Jesus always, always perseveres and he always finishes the job. This is the type of love that Jesus showed his disciples. And he still demonstrates the same love toward us. And we often fail him. I don't know about you guys. You may be more perfect than me. You may be perfect today. But I fail him often. I don't do the things that I'm meant to do. I fail. I fail in, the, in, in, in things left, right and centre. I offend people. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, 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 my mind doesn't work the way I want it to. I, I have bad thoughts. And I'm constantly at this enmity with my flesh. That never seems to finish. I don't know about you, 
I'm not perfect. But the thing I rest upon is the fact that he's perfect. And he continues to encourage me to be that way too. This is the type of love that he expects us to show to each other. Because if he was patient with me when he was perfect and I was bad, and I'm still bad, if he's still showing me patience, how can I not be patient with you guys? Do you understand? If my perfect saviour, who had every right to say, you're useless and hopeless and I'm going to give up on you, if he never gave up on me, when he was already perfect, how can me, how can I, who, who is utterly imperfect, not have patience with you and not love you and not help you? Do you understand? And so how can we not love each other in that way? It's obvious. If he was patient with me and continues to be patient with me, we should be the most patient people in the world. There should be no more patient people, no more loving people than we are. Now let me ask you, why aren't we? This is what Jesus said would epitomise real love. Is this self-sacrifice that puts me second, that puts you first every time. Every time it wins. Every time you win. Every time. Not because of me, but because of him. He put me first every time. I won every time and he lost every time. Let me ask you, what's your motto? Will you not lose? Will you not lose the, the whole world to gain your soul? This is why I genuinely believe in a born-again, baptised membership. It's biblical. It's people who have banded together and, and they've, they've told each other, I choose to love you. I choose to accept Jesus, my Lord and Saviour. And you know something? He tells me I have to love you. And for better or for worse, I'm going to stick it out with you, bunch. Even though I'm perfect in every possible way. It's biblical. In a committed group of individuals sold out for Jesus, who are aware that they don't, they don't own themselves, they don't deserve anything, everything's been given to them, they are rich beyond belief. What more do we have to do? What more do we have to, to be given? To give. We are the richest people in this universe. We are richest, rich beyond our imagination. Our father owns the cattle on 10,000 hills. We have a beloved who is the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He who is called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is our beloved. He's ours. And when you have him, you don't need anyone else. We are different. The Bible says we are peculiar. We're peculiar because we're his. The Bible calls us kings and priests to God. Kings and priests. Did you know that about yourself? If we're not these things, if we're not, if all this I'm telling you today is complete rubbish, then you know something? We're just another club. We're an association. We're a get-together. We have a good time. We tell some good stories. And you know something? Really, the Bible says 
If you really boil it down, the Apostle Paul says, we are the most miserable people on this planet. Because if none of this is true, then we are absolutely wasting our time here. And we could be doing a whole lot of other stuff. But are you convinced this morning? Because I am. I'm convinced. And I haven't spent the majority of my life now reading this word that he's given us and I'm finding more and more truth in it each and every day to turn back now. He has proven himself over and over again and the reason we sit here today is because he has been faithful, not us. You know, the Apostle John, when people left the church at Ephesus, when they nicked off and they said, oh, we don't believe that rubbish anymore. You know the Apostle John, what he said? He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. In other words, not everyone that steps foot in a church is a genuine Christian. Not everyone who... Preachers from a pulpit is a genuine Christian. Not everyone who's a deacon, not everyone who serves, not everyone who does things in the church is a genuine Christian. But you know something? I would rather be in the church with some ingenuous Christians where I know that there are other Christians that I can serve and I can be with than out in the world. Because this is where God calls me to be. If you have never put up your hand to say, I'm part of you, I'll be accountable to you. If you've never done that, then you may not be accountable to the Lord himself. Do you understand that? My challenge to those who are not members of a church, whether it's this church or any other church, if you are not a member of a church, is to consider your position. And your obedience to the Lord. For those of you who are members of this church, I believe that the Lord will finish what he has started with you. I want to thank you for your faithfulness, your prayers, your support and your love. And my prayer is that we will continue, continue to do this and grow until the end. Remember, if you've given yourself wholeheartedly to his work, then you will grow as you are meant to. We often emphasize the basics here at faith. Okay? We often, when people have problems, we often say, go back to the basics. Go back to the basics. Pray regularly. Are you praying? Because if you're not praying, you need to be communicating with God. Are you reading the word of God regularly? Are you reading every day? Are you, are you gaining, drinking that milk in, that spiritual milk that will help you to grow? Because if you're not... Don't come and say, oh, my life is not going well. Are you attending church regularly? Are you fellowshipping? Because it's a, a, a vital ingredient of your growth. But obeying the Lord and doing his work in the church is vital for your growth. Absolutely vital. It's the outward focus of love where real growth can be found. Everything else is just self-centeredness. You know something? I can be praying. I can even read the Bible. If I'm so focused on me, 
that I forget about everyone else around me, I haven't fulfilled what God has wanted me to do, which is learn how to love. So if you can't love people around you, there is something significantly wrong. At our breakfast yesterday, we discussed a passage in Timothy, which Paul says would epitomise the last days of this world. And this, is, and this he was speaking about the church. He says the people in the church are going to be like this. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. We are living in perilous days. Okay, That was the conclusion we came to in that meeting. We didn't solve every problem in the world, but what we did was define all its problems, which are sin. It's, and the first thing it says, he gives a list, he gives a litany of traits and characteristics of ungodliness that will exist in the church. Okay, And he starts off with, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Lovers of their own selves. Yet Jesus says, by this shall men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So what epitomizes the church in the end is a self-love. It's a putting me first in everything. It's putting everyone else second and me first. And you know something? And if this church doesn't give me the sort of preaching that I want, or if you know the music isn't the right way, or you know something, so-and-so offended me down there, you know something, uh, I'm going to get another one. Is that love? This world and, and our culture is defined by loving themselves. Numero uno, number one, has to come first, which is me. And if I don't come first, then I'm not happy. People think that by putting themselves first, I'll find happiness and joy. No. People think that by spending all their time thinking about their own selves and their own problems, they're going to find happiness. I've got some bad news for you. The more you think about yourself, the more you're concerned about your own issues... And the less you start serving and loving other people, the more issues you're going to have. That's the way life works. The more you love yourself, sorry Whitney, the greatest love is not loving yourself. The greatest love is loving the Lord God first and then loving other people. And you know when you come? Down the back of the queue, not the front. Genuine love. And you know something? Sometimes the most simple people understand this principle that we lose it. You know, sometimes the most happy people in this world are the ones who have absolutely zero and spend their lives looking after their families and caring for other people. They are so absorbed with actually giving that they forget about their own issues. They live the most fulfilled lives. Christians and non-Christians. Sometimes we get caught up in ourselves a little bit too much. So if you don't belong to a church, then you may be outside, and sorry, I'm sad to say, it's actually you are outside the will of God, and you need to make a choice. God does not believe in mavericks. God does not believe in mavericks. If you look at the, the Bible and the people that were sent out as missionaries, they were sent out from churches under the authority of churches, okay? doesn't matter where you are in the world, you need to be part of a church. 
Just as we've been called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and our neighbour as ourselves, Jesus calls us to love his church. A new commandment. We are to love one another as he has loved us. This is how the rest of the world is meant to see who we actually are. Now, Eddie prayed that we, we, we wouldn't blaspheme his name. We wouldn't blaspheme his name. Now, what that means is when we say, oh, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And this is what the Bible teaches. But they get in front of, in front of the, the, the unsaved, in front of the world, we go and act like them. And they say, oh, look at that person over there. He says he's a Christian. And he's doing just like me. And they know what they're doing is wrong. But we give them actual credence in doing it. And they know that Jesus would not allow such things. So we need to be careful that we don't blaspheme the world out there. But by the same token, they are meant to see who we are by the love that we have for each other. How do, how do we match up this morning? I think there's plenty of love in this church. One of the things that, that's a blessing to me is the amount of love that we receive. And I'll speak on behalf of myself, my wife, and my daughter. How much love do you have for each other? How do you match up? How do I match up? First John says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Are you ready for that this morning? If things start getting worse and worse out there, are you ready to lay down your life for the brethren? That's the type of love God calls you to have. Do we properly love the one thing that Jesus gave his life for, that he calls his body, his bride, his beloved, his betrothed? He calls it the holy Jerusalem. Do you love it like he loves it? Do you? Because that will demonstrate whether you're a genuine Christian or not. If you can't love his church, then how can you say you love him? If you can't love the brethren, then how can you, who you can see, how can you love God who you can't see? Love is the goal of our lives. Love fulfills every law and can't be judged. Will you love the people that you're sitting next to this morning? Will you love them? Happy anniversary. God bless you all. God loves you. Amen.